0: of you online. Welcome. Thanks for joining this community, North Boulevard. Those of you who are here, we have a fabulous crowd. It's so good to see you back. I know why you came. The big, wet, slobbery kiss. Am I right? <laughs> well, we just got to wait a little bit longer on that because I don't want to give you whatever it is I have. Um, although, well, never mind. <laughs> I'm so glad to see you, really. Boy, wasn't that music big? It's so good to be back together. I, I want to say this. So um, we're going to do this for three weeks. Today, in two more weeks, we'll reevaluate. We're probably just going to inch along, reevaluating. You know, if we see a spike, we'll have to go back. You know how that works. If things work well, we'll continue on. Uh, so be praying to God. Be praying for peace among ourselves. Because you know you can't make everybody happy and we all have different opinions. I've been really proud of you as a congregation. We've not had the fights that some of the churches have had. So thank you for that. Thank you for your maturity on it. And just praise the Lord that we get to come back together. Man, the music just not, almost blew the roof off. Really glad you're here. Okay, it's a privilege to, to preach to you today from Ephesians chapter 4 beginning at verse 17. It's a privilege, but I have to tell you, it's a difficult lesson. This is, um, I think, the most difficult text in all of Ephesians. And I want to keep it as positive as I can, but it's kind of a, a, it's a hard lesson. It's maybe a hard lesson to listen to. So um, before I do that, let me say this. I'm really excited, not only because we're all back together, but because tonight we start that relaunch or that refocus on small groups. We have a new curriculum coming apart. We've asked you, will you commit to a small group for the next six weeks? Give us a shot at it. The curriculum, I think you'll enjoy the curriculum. It'll be a little bit uh, challenging. I actually had Anthony Walker help me with one of the lessons, and I've got Anthony explaining it, I think. Hey, Anthony Walker of Highway 231 Church of Christ. Thanks for helping us out. Tell us what the project is you and I did together. Well, we did a video that really kind of got deep into uh, race and Jesus and how we can make this thing work a little better. If there's one thing that we need to take away from that lesson that you could say right now, Anthony, I'm springing this on you, what would it be? Oh, there's prayer, there's grace, there's understanding, uh, and there's really friendship, making those unique friendships. That's a big part of it. So, uh, hey man, I want you to know that uh, our people adore you, and they always tell me that they're fine with me going out of town as long as I get you to preach in my place. (laughs) that's true, isn't it? So join us tonight. Commit. Just give us six weeks. If you're not in a small group, give us six weeks trial. If you don't like it, you can drop out. I'll harass you again next year sometime. But let's see if we can't claim this blessing, strong small groups out of the pandemic. That's one of the things I think God wants us to get out of this pandemic. And now we're going to jump into the text of Ephesians chapter four. First, the story. So uh, in 1945, the USS uh, Indianapolis set sail for a secret mission carrying parts for the atomic weapons that would eventually be dropped on two cities in Japan. Because it was a secret mission, even the Navy, many people in the Navy didn't know about the ship. Well, some of you know about the uh, infamous story of the Indianapolis. Uh, On July the 30th of 1945, it was hit by two Japanese torpedoes. There were about 1,200 men on board, uh, uh, sailors and also Marines. 300 of them went down with the ship. 900 of them survived, but they were um, left in the waters of the Pacific for four and a half days. Uh, It was the worst disaster in naval history, US naval history. Um, They faced starvation. Many of them had injuries that they died of. Uh, If you know anything about the Annapolis, you know that the shark problem was unspeakable. We can't really talk about that. 300 of them survived, 600 died in the four days they waited one of the greatest sources of suffering was thirst. So because the Navy didn't know the ship had gone down, there was not a rescue mission sent out for them. So these men are in all slick waters, surrounded by an ocean of water, but unable to drink. And you know that if you drink the salt water of an ocean, it actually has the opposite effect as drinking fresh water. It, It dehydrates you. In fact, it poisons you. And so many of the men died of water poisoning while they were thirsting to death. And the way it worked oftentimes is the men would drink the water. It might give them a very brief um, pleasure thrill sensation that they were being, their thirst were being quenched, but then they would begin to hallucinate. And in many cases, they went so crazy that they would swim away from the group. And that's when many of them perished in again, very difficult ways. And so the watch phrase that the commanders for the four and a half days that these sailors and Marines tried to survive, the watch phrase they used was this one over and over again, don't drink the water, don't drink the water. And for decades after that, the 318 men who survived would have those words ringing in their ears, don't drink the water. In Ephesians, the fifth chapter, we'll get to it in a minute. Paul says that we live in, his words, evil days. Now, the truth is there are boatloads, shiploads of goodness, not only in the church and in our lives and in the US, but at the same time, there is an ocean of evil. It seems to me that 2020 has highlighted some of the darker sides of living in a broken world. And probably we don't have to establish the fact that there's a lot of badness in this world. And Paul wants us to know as followers of Jesus, don't drink the water. Don't become like the pagan world around you. It's a really important imperative. It's what the text is about. Paul wants to say, look, you have made your choice. We'll make this statement throughout the lesson. You made your choice already. You decided to follow Jesus. And that means you have chosen a very different way of living. I want us to look at the text and just see what Paul has to say. A lot of it is um, descriptive of the sins that create this ugly world. But there's also in it rays of light and a lot of hope. We'll try to draw both of those out. Let's start in verse 17 where Paul says, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge every kind of impurity and they're full of greed. So here's what Paul does. He sets up two ways of living in this text. You can either live a sensual life or you can live a spiritual life. I want to say that again. Paul uses the word sensuality. That's how it's translated in the uh, New International Version. It's a word that in the Greek language means living a shameless life. That's not a whole lot that you could do that would make you feel ashamed of yourself. It can mean a life that's, uh, the old word was licentious. That is, you don't live by a lot of boundaries. If you really want to define sensuality, is this cutting out, Sean? Mike sounds like it's cutting out to me. Okay. So if you really want to define it, sensuality is doing what feels good. And we just need to admit the fact that most of us face a world where people live this way. America is saturated with sensuality. It's used in marketing. It's used in our relationships. Uh, sensuality is, it, it, it sells. It's one of the biggest, um, um, uh, biggest services offered in the U.S., everything from pornography all the way down to all the services you can get. So much of it is designed to make you feel good. Paul wants us to know you really do have to make a choice. You either live a sensual life, indulging the appetites and lusts of the world, or you can live a spiritual life. The spiritual life is doing what is holy and right. So the question the Christian asks about anything we participate in is this, what is the right thing to do? We don't ask the question, what feels good? We ask the question, what's the right thing to do? And in fact, we just want to point out about sensuality, that it comes with a huge price tag. Sensuality is sacrificing eternal joy for temporary pleasure. I just want to say it. The reason why we're so tempted by sensuality is because it feels good. Sexual sin feels good. That's why we do it. When you get angry at your spouse and you scream at your spouse, it feels good to do it. That's why we do it. There's no other reason to do it. It feels so satisfying to be able to vent your rage on somebody else. Greed, hoarding the things to yourself, being stingy with your money. The reason we do it is because it feels good. There's no other reason to do it. So what Paul wants us to know is that when we choose to follow Jesus, we turn down sensual ways of living. What we say from that point forward is not, does this feel good? From now on, we ask the question, what's the right thing to do? I mentioned last week my profound admiration for Tom Beatty, passed away a couple of years ago, a longtime elder at North Boulevard, who, as far as I can tell, never once asked the question, what feels good? He only asked the question, what's the right thing to do? That's the kind of decision that a Christian has to commit to. I just want to make sure that we understand how it works, because Paul really describes what you might call the the, uh, the spiraling out of control of sinful living, of living by sensuality. First he says, sensuality starts by indulging your lusts. You want something, so you go do it. Then he says, once we've indulged our lusts, we end up having to harden our hearts. And you think about how this works. When you do something that's wrong, we're hardwired to want to justify ourselves. So once we do something that's wrong, we immediately begin to say it wasn't really wrong. It wasn't my fault. It's his fault. It's something somebody else did this. Maybe it's not wrong in this context. Or I'm not. We immediately start to harden our hearts. We all do it. It's a game we play because we can't stand living with a guilty conscience. So we just harden our hearts to what we've done. Third, Paul says, after we've hardened our hearts, our minds get darkened. When you harden your heart enough, you can no longer see the difference between truth and falsehood. If you lie to yourself long enough, you can't see the truth anymore. You can't tell the difference between what's good and what's evil. In fact, you start calling that which is evil, good. The fifth step in this digression, Paul says, is we end up cut off from God because God doesn't abide evil. So we find ourselves cut off from God. And finally, he says, we earn the punishment that we deserve. Let me give you just one quick illustration of this. And I really have considered whether to do this or not. The text has a lot to do with sexuality. It's not a fun subject to preach on. I don't think I slept much at all last night worried about, oh my goodness, I don't want to preach this text. It's an honor and a privilege, but I don't want to do it. One of the greatest sensual sins in America is sexual sin. Why? Why is it such a sin? Well, let me just say this. North Americans don't want to say it's a sin because we've already worked through the progression I just mentioned. Here's why it's a sin. The most fundamental socializing force in the world is the family. It is the family that teaches you what it means to be human. It's in a family where you learn delayed gratification. It's in a family where you learn ethics and respect. In the family, you learn how to live with other people in such a way that treats them well. It's in a family where you find out what it truly means to have empathy Sexual sin always chips away at this most fundamental human institution of the family. Ultimately, it destroys it. So I'll give you just this procession. Just watch how this happens. Here's a guy. He's out clubbing one night. He picks up a woman. It's a hookup. He goes home. They have an illicit sexual relationship. No harm, right? A couple of months later, she discovers she's pregnant. Now, In some cases, she decides that in order to maintain her feeling of innocence, she'll just say the baby is not a baby and we'll kill it. But in some cases, she's going to say, I'm going to carry this child all the way through full term. What's the guy do? Well, he's indulged his lust, but now he realizes he's going to have to pay $500 a month for the next 18 years to raise a child that he may never even see. So what's he say? It's not my child. He runs from it. Now, by the way, remind yourself, this is going to be a human being born in about seven months whose own father has run away from him. Even if it can be proven that he's a father, a paternity test or whatnot, a court has to force him to support that child. And in so many cases, he wants to have nothing to do with that child. The child grows up without that socializing power that only a father can bring. Now that he's done this, now that he's hardened his heart to his own child, to his own child he's done this, he now has a darkened mind. Now he can lie about anything because he's told himself a lie. He's lied so much to himself, now he can lie about anything. He has a seared conscience, the Bible would say, a darkened mind. He can no longer really tell the difference between truth and falsehood, between good and evil. So he ends up separated from God, and God says, you're going to get the wrath you deserve for this. What you've done to this child, you're going to pay. Now, let me just pause and say this. That's when this one guy does it. What happens when a million Americans do that? What happens when 10 million Americans do that? What happens when we reach a tipping point where we have so many men who have done this? What happens to a culture Well, the culture says, no, the lusts have to go on. The lusts have to go on. The sexual ethic of North America is the biggest lie ever told in our country. It is a fraud hoisted upon us. That says you can indulge any pleasure, any sensual desire, and still be okay. It strikes at the very root of what makes us a civilized country. And so a whole culture indulges their lusts, and then they have to harden their hearts not our fault. We get okay with it. We're okay with this. We are okay with the fact that 80% of the children in our inner cities are growing up without their fathers. We are okay with that. That's when you've hardened your heart. And once you've hardened your heart enough, you can't see light even when it's in front of you. Your mind gets darkened. Now you make all kinds of excuses. You pass all kinds of laws intended to address the symptoms but never touching the disease. And when you do that, you find yourself separated from God and you face God's wrath. So we find ourselves with children who have all sorts of mental health issues. We find ourselves with families in deep, deep poverty who, as far as I can tell, will never get out because now poverty's become a state of mind. We find our children with incarceration rates higher than any other nation on planet earth. Why? Because they never had a dad. We discover the drug use and gangs. We find that young girls at the age of 15 are out having babies because all they ever wanted was somebody to love them. We've done this to ourselves. America did this to itself. I'm pointing this out. Here's why. If we don't understand that this is what chasing sensuality and lust will do, then we are going to find ourselves one day completely separated from God. It's not fun to do this. I don't want to talk like this. I can't wait till we get to something nice later on in the book of Ephesians. But we have to be the best garbage detectors in town or we're failing at our job. We have to be able to detect the garbage that's being presented to us. The real problem America faces today is what we have done to our families. So should I stop? I feel like I should. Who said that? (laughs) Okay. So I'm thinking. We have a presidential candidate who recently did an interview with Cardi B, one of the most famous musicians in America, whose best song, most popular song, is a pornographic song whose name I can't even say. Every single word of the song is pornography. He's alleged to have committed sexual assault. He's alleged to have uh, acted very inappropriately towards women. His own running mate says she believes it. She believes he did it. At the same time, we have a presidential candidate who, according to reports, paid off a porn star before running for office. So she would keep her mouth shut about their relationship. And I'm looking at that. If you don't like what I'm saying... I'm sorry. No, I'm not sorry. I am not sorry. Look, I'm not Democrat. I'm not Republican. I follow Jesus Christ. And if we can't speak the truth in this room, we can't speak the truth anywhere. Is that what we've got? Is that the country we want? That's our choices. Is that the country we want? That's what happens when we start here and we just let it tumble down out of control. And Paul is saying, guys, this is the good news. You are better than that. You're better than that. You're the light. You're the ones that the world is supposed to be able to look at and say, now I see what it's supposed to look like. Well, let's read the text. We have to keep moving. Verse 20. I just want you to know I'm shutting down my computer and turning off all my phones after this sermon. (laughs) For two weeks. Quarantine. That's right. I'm quarantining. So verse 20. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught about him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by his deceitful desires. See, these these desires, they're lying to us. They're lying to us. To be made new in the attitude of your minds, to put on the new self, created to be like God in true rightness and holiness. Remember the choice sensuality, where it's all about what makes me feel good, or spirituality, where it's all about what honors my God. You already chose the second. I'm just reminding you, you made your decision. Now spend the rest of your life managing the decision you once and for all already made. Let's keep going. We have to finish the text. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we're all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. By the way, I counted 29 different sins in this text. So I actually prepared a document thinking it'd be a whole lot faster for you just to have them listed than for me to try to comment on all of them in a sermon. If I spent one minute on each, it'd be 30 minutes. This will be available online, and those of you who are here, I think it might be in the pews as well. But I do want to comment once or twice. Let me just make sure you understand the beauty of this text. Paul says, in your anger do not sin. So he doesn't necessarily suggest that anger is a sin. In many cases, anger is not a sin. If you walked up here right now and stomped on my toe, I'd get angry. That'd be the first thing I would do. That's not a sin. The sin occurs if I retaliate. It's what I do with anger. That Paul's concerned about. You're going to get angry with your wife. That's not a sin. When you scream at her, that's a sin. When you refuse to forgive, that's a sin. When you make it worse because it feels good. And let's be honest, the reason you yell at her is because it feels good. It makes you feel like a victim. It makes you feel so abused. It's a good feeling. You chose spirituality. Over feelings. So now live consistent with that. Let's keep going. Anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but he must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Every provision God gives us is intended to be shared. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for the building up of others according to their needs. That it may benefit those who are listen. By the way, if we just put this one thing into practice, it would make a really beautiful change to a lot of our lives. Don't say anything that's not designed to build somebody up. By the way, that doesn't mean it always has to be nice. Sometimes you have to confront people. I mean, in the middle of Paul saying, only speak what helps people, he says some very harsh things because he knows it helps them. So we're not suggesting that you must affirm everything everybody wants you to affirm. That's not love, by the way. That's foolishness. What we are saying, however, is weigh every word. Is this going to help? If it's not going to help, don't say it, even if it feels good to get it off your chest. Just don't say it. So Paul keeps going. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. To grieve the Holy Spirit means to make him sad. How do you make him sad? you don't do what he teaches you to do. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you follow God's example therefore as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God now the next few verses Paul comes back to sexual sin sensuality and again what's the problem you are trading eternal joy for temporary pleasure deceitful pleasure and i just want to say I've thought a lot about this, about the idea of pleasure and joy and happiness and how they relate. You know, if you've you've been here a while, you know I, I, I circle around to them about once a year, those concepts. Pleasure feels better than joy, I think. I think pleasure is better. It feels better than joy. You know, pleasing the senses, pleasing the body, pleasing the eyes, pleasing the ears. But joy is deeper and far more permanent than pleasure. So the spiritual person picks that, which is permanent and profound, over that which is titillizing, which makes you excited, the thrill. So the Christian life is not a roller coaster. It's It's not a joy ride. It's not Disney. The Christian life is a marathon. And I can tell you, I've ridden Disney rides before, and I've also run a marathon, and nothing feels quite like finishing a marathon. There's something there. It matters. So we're choosing in Christ, not pleasure, but joy, permanent joy, eternal joy. So he says, among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual sin or any kind of impurity or greed because these are improper for God's holy people, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking. These are out of place. Instead, use your mouth to say thank you. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. I just want to pause on this. So he's talking about sexuality here. And he says, don't get deceived by people who want to soften it. I want to say this because there are many in the Christian world today who are starting to say, well, maybe the Bible doesn't mean what it says, as though God doesn't really know how to speak. You know, maybe the church fathers didn't really understand. The guys who spoke the languages of Jesus. Maybe Augustine had no idea what he was speaking of, or Aquinas. Maybe Luther and Calvin had no idea. But I've got some blogger down in Texas and she knows, she knows. I just want to make sure you understand. Paul already addresses this and he says, do not be deceived by empty words like that. When God wants to make something clear, he makes it clear. Our job is not to negotiate. Our job is to obey. We obey, and I want you to know. Listen, obedience is not a form of bondage. Obedience is a form of liberty. Big three hundred pound guys line up to play football for five foot six Nick Saban. He does not say to those guys, "Go out there on the field and make yourself happy." Can you imagine Nick Saban saying, "These guys never even smiled." He's mad when they're winning. Nick Saban orders them to obey, and they line up a mile deep to play for this guy because they know that through obedience, they're going to become the best football players in America. Obedience, my wife, you saying no? Is this an Auburn, Alabama thing? Did you not see the game last night? Um, I'm just asking. Remember, it's okay to get mad, but it's not okay to yell at your spouse. We've already dealt with that one. What's he say? He says here, don't be deceived by this. Obedience sets us free. Jesus's teachings are liberating. Do you think what Jesus teaches us about the sanctity of the home is bondage? It's liberating. When Jesus teaches us to forgive one another, that's bondage, it's liberating. When Jesus helps us escape our sins and our addictions, that's bondage? No, that's liberation. So he says, don't let yourself go back to these empty words. Because of such things, the wrath of God comes on those who are disobedient. So don't be partners with them. For once you were darkness, but now you're the light of the Lord. Live as children of light. The fruit of the light consists of goodness, rightness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. That's the question we ask. What pleases the Lord? And now we're about to wrap up. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. I just want to pause and note this. I said earlier, let me say it again. Christians should have the best garbage detectors of anybody in town. We not only spot the garbage in our culture, but we point to it. It's not enough for us to be quiet. I'm not suggesting you be a jerk about it. The world's got plenty of jerks. We don't need more jerks. And I'm not suggesting you say what you think every time you think it. We've all had plenty of that too. We'd like for you to turn that down a little bit. What I am suggesting is that Christians have the ability to spot garbage and in appropriate, proper times, and with love, we help the world see it. He says, expose it. What's shameful even to mention what the it's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that's illuminated becomes a light. This is why it said, he quotes, I think this is a hymn. We don't really know this, but it appears to be a hymn that he's quoting, maybe a line from a spiritual song. Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Then he gets, as we're getting down to the end, we've got two more uh, sections to go. Be careful how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And I'm going to end on this. So remember, he's already put two ways of living before us. Sensuality, where I live to feel good, and spirituality, where I live to please God. Those are your choices. And by the way, you already made your choice. Like, I, I don't need to keep reminding you of that. You, when you were baptized, you made the choice. So now stop acting like you're not sure you made the choice and start acting like you made the choice. That's what he's saying. Don't go backwards. Don't go back to that pagan stuff. You get a choice now, he says, between either being drunk on alcohol or being drunk on the Holy Spirit. It's a beautiful way of thinking about it. You're either going to be controlled by your addictions or you're going to be controlled by Jesus. So he says, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. The word debauchery means stupid behavior. Instead, he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. So, I mean, it's a beautiful image. It's not just alcohol. So alcohol is a problem. But it's not just that. Most of us wrestle with some kind of addiction. Most of us have an addictive personality type. Most of us are struggling with some kind of addiction. And Paul's just saying, don't be controlled by your addictions. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Let the Spirit be the one in charge. In fact, he says, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music in your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the sake of time, I just want to make one quick comment about this, uh, the last verses 19 and 20. So our fellowship has used these verses a lot to talk about what kind of music God wants. I want to say he does articulate the kind of music that he's looking for in these texts, but I don't want you to miss the point of the text. The point of the text is not about what kind of music God wants. The point of the text is be filled with the Holy Spirit. And even as a teenager, I thought it odd that we seemed to focus on the thing that Paul wasn't that concerned about, what kind of music you have, and we neglected being filled with the Holy Spirit, which is the only point of the text. In fact, the way he puts it is, be filled with the Spirit as or while, or it's a dative. It's a a, speaking to one another is in the dative form in the Greek language. And here's what that means in English. It means that the way you're filled with the Holy Spirit is through songs, so if you're asking yourself the question, well, how, do, how can I fill myself with the Spirit? I thought God had to do that. Paul says, well, sing. When you sing, it happens. So if you're online, I hope you tasted it. But if you're right here, the Holy Spirit was just rolling through us as we were singing. That's why we walk around with songs in our hearts. I don't care who writes your theology. Let me write your music and I'll shape the destiny of your church. Music has that kind of power. So Paul teaches us that our music will fill us with the Holy Spirit. All right, we are in a spiritual battle, as we always have been as people of God, for our souls, the souls of our families, for the soul of our church, the soul of this congregation, the soul of America, the soul of the world. It's a spiritual battle, a spiritual battle that we fight. And to fight the spiritual battle, I'm going to move through these really quickly. They were really good, but we'll save those for some other time. I've got something else I want to do. You know, I usually come up with about three sermons when I walk up here and I have to sort out which ones I don't want to preach, depending on how you look at me. And uh, so just if you give me bad looks, you just missed another sermon. I'm sorry to say. So here's what we do, guys. We just do what Paul says. We conduct ourselves as children of God. We realize we're in a spiritual fight for our lives. This is a spiritual battle. I just want to remind you. When you fight with your husband, it's a spirit. ultimately it's between the devil and the Holy Spirit. It's bigger than you. You know, when you wrestle with your temptations, remind yourself it's not just physical. This is a cosmic spiritual battle for the soul of your life. When we deal with division in the church, and there are churches that are really dividing over mask and no mask and COVID and what we coming back together and so forth, I just want to make sure you know: if we start to divide over that, it is not so much about us as it is the devil fighting the Holy Spirit. It is a spiritual battle that we fight, and there are eternal consequences. So we pick that which is spiritual, and when we do, we get the blessings of God. I got to go back to this story. So, the USS Indianapolis, 318 men survived of the 1,200 who were on the ship. Again, the worst naval disaster in American history. Those guys who survived, many of them convalesced in hospitals for months. Some of them were burned and injured in terrible ways. When they finally got back to the US, an awful lot of them never said a word about it. For a long time, nobody knew the story of the Indianapolis. So we're losing that generation of World War II veterans. Some of us are old enough to remember. I remember this. The World War II veterans I knew as a boy growing up never talked about the war. Julie's dad was at the Battle of D-Day, Battle of Normandy. Never talked about it. You'd ask him questions, he'd laugh and brush it off. It's like they just didn't want to talk about it. Maybe it was so bad, I don't know. One guy who came through it, was a young man who signed up as a Marine when he was 18 from a small town in Kentucky, Edgar Harrell. He was on the ship when it went down. He was one of those who held on to his his brothers in arms as they floated for four and a half days, starving to death, injured, and watching one another killed. When he came back, he didn't talk about it. For decades, he didn't talk about it. He had so much anger inside of him He had a rage inside of him, unforgiveness. He hated the Japanese. By the way, I'm old enough to remember when Nissan first came to Rutherford County. The rest of y'all remember that? There were people protesting. A lot of World War II vets, they were so angry at Japan and didn't want Nissan here. Thank God he's brought so much healing for us. But uh, this young man really wrestled with it. Until 20 or 25 years ago, When he finally, his son became a minister. By the way, he just died this year, January of this year. Edgar Harold died, lived in Clarksville, Tennessee. His son became a minister and his son began to work on him. Dad, you got to forgive. You got to let it go. You got to love even your enemies. You're carrying such a burden around. Harrell and the guys who survived began to have reunions, the survivors reunions. They would get together and they started talking. In fact, he, he published a book a couple of years ago about his story, he finally got to where he could talk about it. And as they would come together and share their stories, each of them began to say, you know, it's time to let go of it. It's time to forgive. It's time just to appreciate what God has done for us. There were some issues that had to be resolved from the past. The, the commander of the ship was put on trial. And all the sailors, and Marines said it was a, a mock trial that they were just looking for somebody to blame. Uh, Harold was supposed to get a promotion. He never got it. On his 50th anniversary, he got his promotion to sergeant. And one time, I think the year, I've tried to find the exact year. He mentions it, but I can't quite clearly get the year. It's 2010 or 2014. Little less than two dozen survivors met for their reunion and they decided It's time for us to put it behind us." So they had a special invitation. You'll never guess who showed up. The daughter of the Japanese commander of that submarine. They invited her to come. She came and she brought her daughter, who was seven years old at the time. And all these uh, Marines sailors sat there trying to get their heads around what was going on. He's getting choked up. When Harold calls a little girl over and puts her in his lap and says, I love you. And it's gone. They put it behind him. This is exactly what Paul is teaching us. Don't drink the water of this corrupt pagan culture. Put it behind you. We're the people of God. And as the people of God, we're a light to the world. We're salt of the earth. We're a city on a hill. That's who we are. So we live consistent with that. I wanna say a prayer, I wanna call you, you guys come on up, Sean, if you want. I wanna say a prayer. We're gonna ask the Holy Spirit into our lives. Because three times the Bible teaches us to pray in the spirit. Jesus said, if you ask, I'll give you the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 11. So let's pray that. Lord, there are difficult times There's still a lot of goodness, we don't want to deny that. So much good, but still a lot of difficult and a lot of evil. Our prayer, Father, is that you will fill us with the Holy Spirit so that we will choose spirituality over sensuality every time, that we'll do the right thing, Father. And it's in the name of Jesus that we gladly pray this prayer. Amen. So why don't we stand up, and if we can help you in some way, make that choice. You tell us how. Let's sing our song.